Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. One February, a wealthy and successful man of about 40 married a 20-year-old woman from a prominent family. And for a gift, he bought her a very impressive estate. It was in New Jersey on more than 13 acres of land with a main house that was three stories high. But this was a man who, despite his love for his new wife, his first wife had actually passed away a couple of years before, he had a hard time denying what was really his most lasting love, his work. He said when he was working hard, he was like a bee in springtime. He was he knew sheer bliss from working, and he said work was a paradise to him, and he never intended to retire. Melissa Schilling is a professor of management and organizations at New York University's Stern School of Business, and she has spent years dissecting the real stories of some of the world's most well-known innovators. And as a result of his just joy of working, he actually, you know, we would probably say that he neglected his family. His second wife, Mina, who was young and pretty and, you know, Edison was very taken with her, but he still left her alone and went away and worked for big, long stretches of time. And she ended up talking to a journalist about it and saying, you know, Mr. Edison is not like ordinary men. Uh, Because of his work, he has had to be in himself and and not socialize much and not have friends and that's just the nature of his of his life. Schilling is the author of the book Quirky, the remarkable story of the traits, foibles and genius of breakthrough innovators who changed the world. And she argues that when you look at the most famous serial innovators, people who we've heard about all our lives, like Thomas Edison and Marie Curie and Albert Einstein, you start to notice some common traits. For example, a complete obsession with work, even when that's not such a great thing. Edison, for example, was rarely interested in playing with other kids when he was little. He used his pocket money to buy chemicals to do experiments. By the time he married his second wife in 1886, here's the kind of schedule he was keeping. He would work in his lab, according to a friend, from 7 or 7.30 in the morning until about 6 at night. He'd eat dinner at his house, then go back to the lab and return home again at midnight. Though the carriage driver who waited for him often had to cool his heels while Edison did lab work till 2 or 3 in the morning. And sometimes Edison just fell asleep at his workstation and he didn't come home at all. When you study really extreme people, you can start to spot things that you wouldn't notice in ordinary people, but that are actually relevant for ordinary people. Because the traits might go sort of unnoticed until you see them really cranked up to their extreme. Schilling has wanted to understand for a long time what makes innovative minds tick. But for a while, she found herself hitting dead ends. In some early studies we did, we, we formed large, large samples and tried to, tried to look at commonalities and differences across large groups of people. But you don't really get very deep that way because, first of all, you can't get really deep information about a lot of these people. Unless they've had lots of biographies written about them, you don't get the kind of rich deep knowledge of what they're like as people, what their parents were like, what their childhood experiences were like. So she set up an experiment that would automatically scrape online lists of famous innovators and figure out, okay, who was most commonly listed? Her focus was on technological and scientific breakthroughs because art and music tend to be a lot more subjective. What she got wasn't exactly what she was hoping for. So I set up this protocol, and then that yielded about 35 people, I want to say. And and in that set, tragically, there was only one woman, Marie Curie, uh, which initially made me, you know, go out digging and searching for more women. Uh, But at some point I realized, you know, that I wasn't being a scientist anymore. I was being, you know, more of a journalist. Even Marie Curie, Schilling's one woman, was disparaged at the time for being a female in science. 
And that's not surprising. Many of the most prestigious universities in the U.S. and Europe didn't let women and minorities in the door or didn't allow them in in significant numbers until just about 50 years ago. So of the 35 innovators that she was left with, the ones that were the most written about, the most prolific, and that she could profile with the most detail, Schilling tried to choose people who came from a variety of eras, sectors, and places. You know, you could have gotten eight people just from the IT revolution, but you would have had a harder time saying that you had found something about the people versus the context. So by looking across different industries, you get, you get better perspective. Which is why Schilling started learning everything she could about Albert Einstein, Benjamin Franklin, Dean Kamen, Steve Jobs, Nikola Tesla, Marie Curie, Elon Musk, and Thomas Edison. And one of the most notable things about all these people who hail from a bunch of different countries and mostly had pretty dissimilar upbringings is that they were kind of detached from the world around them. Actually, more than kind of. I've done a lot of research on networks, so I was expecting these people to have these really robust, hmm. you know, diverse networks of friends. And instead, what I found was very uh, uh, often loners, very detached people. And the more you study it, the more you realize how important that was to what they did, because that detachment is a big part of what enabled them to break rules and to persist with things that other people said wasn't going to work or was crazy or was inappropriate. Like to be a breakthrough innovator often requires you, in fact, almost always requires you to go against norms and to, you know, to break paradigms. And you have to be quite resilient and you have to be a bit insensitive to what other people think about you when you do it, because you won't initially you won't get a lot of praise. You'll get a lot of ridicule or criticism and you'll face a lot of failure. And so these, by virtue of these people being detached, it's, it's part of what made them more independent. And where you can see that the most is probably in Einstein, because he reflected on this a lot. And he wrote about himself a lot, saying how odd it was that he loved humanity, but he didn't really like people, and about how detached he felt, even from the people that were relatively close to him, he felt detached from them. And that that, on the one hand, seems kind of lonely and a little melancholy. Right. But on the other hand, he really attributed that with making him more independent, making him not shackled to the views of others. And he said that that was really, you know, the key to, to being a breakthrough thinker. Right. Let me actually play you a clip. Um, I talked a while back to uh, Walter Isaacson, who's a big biographer of, of Albert Einstein. And I asked him about how... Einstein's background, which was, you know, he was Jewish in a predominantly Christian country. There's a lot of anti-Semitism. He spent a lot of his life in Switzerland, but he really he was from Germany. So he's got a little bit of a fish out of water there. Um, how that sort of affected him. Here's what Isaacson said. Well, I think it made him feel like more of an outsider, more like somebody who was not really connected to this time and this place, somebody who didn't exactly even have a home. And I think it helps to be a rebel, to question authority, to have a certain cheekiness, anti-authoritarian streak, in order to be able to be a path-breaking scientist. I mean, his uh, theory of special relativity comes partly from questioning the most obvious uh, received wisdom any physicist had, which came from Newton's Principia, that time marches along second by second, no matter how we observe it. But you have this person who's slightly rebellious and questions authority, and he says, well, how would you test that out if you had two distance clocks and you were moving fast between one and the other? Melissa Schilling, it seems like there is kind of this portrait of somebody who's like, you know, I know what the rules are, but I'm going to kind of make my own rules. 
Yeah. And, you know, I want to point out something else. Uh, you know, Einstein originally wanted to be an academic, and academia basically rejected him. His professors didn't like him. They wouldn't write good letters for him. He applied to all the universities in Europe and said he got turned down from all of them. And so he went to be a patent clerk, and he, and he ended up still writing about theoretical physics as a patent clerk. And then he ends up writing these articles that break all the rules of, of being an academic. And that is, if you're an academic and you want to get published in the top journals, first rule number one is to build graciously on the work that's gone before you and to cite all the important people in the field because those people are going to be reviewing your work. And if you try to, uh, you know, break too many glasses, if you if you don't follow these rules, you usually won't get your work published and you certainly won't get it cited. And that's like a recipe for failure as an academic. But he was already an outsider, writing theoretical physicist as a non-academic. So yeah. he was like, okay, to heck yeah. with all those yeah. rules. And he went forward and didn't cite all the people you would expect him to cite. And it's, it's actually quite amazing that his work got published at all. And as you can probably imagine, when it first did get published, it's not as if everybody came running to say how wonderful it was. At first, there was this chilly silence, right? But then when some natural phenomena proved that he was right, that's when the tide turned and when everybody started to really acknowledge him as a genius. Hmm. And this notion of not paying attention to the rules, I mean... This is a totally different example, but you write about Steve Jobs would park in handicapped spaces. Like the idea of being like, yeah. I know there are rules in the world and I know like whatever polite society does this, but I cannot be bothered to yeah. observe polite society. Yeah, he didn't even put a license plate on his car. And a lot of the time really? he didn't wear shoes oh my gosh. Or, or wear deodorant or shower. Uh, those rules were for other people. So talk a little bit about uh, an inventor that has gotten a certain amount of press, but um, that's, you know, alive today, um, a little bit of a, a, you know, somebody who's more recent, certainly, than like an Albert Einstein or a Marie Curie, Dean Kamen. You know, what has he done and why, to you, was he somebody to look at in terms of innovativeness? You know, Dean Kamen is the person that I've studied the longest, paradoxically. Um, So Dean Kamen... You know, what most people know him for is the Segway. And a lot of people think he's the guy that rolled off the cliff on the Segway. He's not. Uh, that was a person who bought the Segway itself. But what he should be known for, he's actually created a lot of even way more important inventions than that. So, for instance, he invented the first portable drug diffusion pump where you can wear, you know, if you need insulin, for example, on a regular basis because you're a type 1 diabetic, he was the person who invented a portable version of that, which was life-changing, life-saving, huge innovation. He also invented the world's first portable dialysis machine. And, you know, before portable dialysis, needing to get dialysis was a really miserable thing. You had to go sit at the hospital for hours connected up to a giant machine while your blood got pumped through it and filtered. And, you know, it was disruptive to your life and your family, and it was uncomfortable. And he just looked at that and said, it doesn't need to be like that. And he created a portable dialysis machine that just liberated people, which was amazing. And then he started working on the iBot Mobility wheelchair. And it's because he saw a woman struggling to get up a curb in her wheelchair, and it really broke his heart, and he thought, that's not cool. So he started building a wheelchair that could climb stairs, it could stand up on two wheels and bring you to eye level. A really Hmm. remarkable feat because it required an incredible amount of balance technology. And it's the iBot technology that led to the Segway. So he's a, a very prolific breakthrough innovator, but he keeps a very low profile. You don't see him all over the magazines or or all over the internet that much. He's now probably known more for leading the way on uh, the first competitions in robotics for children. Yes, yep, yep. So that's been very influential. 
So Dean Kamen actually was once asked um, if he ever takes a vacation. And he said, this is a quote, I don't play golf. I don't sit at the beach. I don't roam around places like a tourist. For me, a vacation is moving from one project to another. What do you think drives that kind of relentless work ethic, whether it's for Cayman or or for anybody else you studied? Yeah. Okay. So there's two main things going on here, I think. And I'm going to start with the with the one that was less obvious to me until I studied Thomas Edison. So part of it is that they have a, a desire, a love of work. It's like a border collie. They just enjoy the process of working hard. It makes them feel good. Hmm. Uh, it's like getting into f- what Chicks Mahaley would call flow. But this this process of working and having a slightly obsessive personality, that's part of it. The second part is that they have, the, and, and this was actually a really big surprise to me because I've been in innovation research for a long time, and we have never looked at this before. But all of them, except for Thomas Edison, had a really strong idealistic focus where they were pursuing some goal that they thought was bigger than themselves. Huh. And because it was bigger than themselves, more important than them, it was, it was more important than money, more important than, than reputation, more important than comfort or health, sometimes more important than their own families. And so this idealistic goal made them incredibly driven. And it also gave them a lot of resilience to criticism because it, it didn't matter to them what you thought of them because they were working for a higher cause, right? And it, so that gave them a certain ego defense or a certain resilience. And the other final piece that's kind of interesting is that sometimes it helped rally people around them even if they were difficult people. Let's pause for a second here. We're going to take a quick break and talk on the other side about what you can learn from great innovators. And we'll also examine the amazing and kind of amazingly single-minded life of Marie Curie, whose family incredibly netted five Nobel Prizes. If you want to hear this whole conversation, you can just head to our website, innovationhub.org. You can also subscribe to our podcast. From PRI and WGBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. We've been talking about what it takes to be one of the greatest innovators in the world, to achieve lasting fame. Well, one thing that doesn't appear to hurt is to march to the beat of your own drummer. I don't read novels. I like reading old physics books and old math books because I can read a page of differential equations as quickly as I can read a comic strip. That's Dean Kamen, the inventor of a whole host of medical technologies, among other things. A man who bought his own island, built a power grid, expressed a desire to secede from the U.S., and designed his home in the shape of a hexagon. Kamen helped inspire the research of Melissa Schilling, a professor at NYU's Stern School of Business and the author of the book Quirky, the remarkable story of the traits, foibles, and genius of breakthrough innovators who changed the world. But of the eight inventive minds that Schilling studied, perhaps no one marched to the beat of their own drummer more than a woman whose work ultimately killed her. A woman named Marie Curie, who actually might be most remarkable for what she gave up during her life. Oh, so much. And, you know, I want to be clear, she was a woman in science when other women weren't women in science. And you might assume that that meant she was hailed and praised as being this remarkable thing. That's the opposite, right? She was actually spurned and criticized and ridiculed, you know, for being somewhere where she didn't belong. 
and she had a sort of quiet disagreeableness about her in that she wasn't she wasn't obnoxious the way Jobs was, but she put her head down and ignored everybody and did what she was going to do regardless of what other people wanted her to do. And it was it was a beautiful obstinance about her, uh, even when when people were were very critical of her. Like Lord Kelvin actually wrote a letter to the popular press basically saying she was all wrong and that radium didn't even exist and, you know, really ridiculing her in a way that hmm. was unbecoming of a scientist. It was really uncommon for a scientist to write the popular press about another scientist. And she didn't go to the press and argue her case. She just put her head down and spent three years proving him wrong. And that was the beauty of her just sort of quiet obstinance. She was disagreeable, but not in sort of an outward way. But uh, talking about what she gave up, you know, first of all, she the biggest thing I'd say she gave up was taking care of her kids. You know, she basically gave her children to her father-in-law to raise. And, you know, that was very hard on, on all of them, I think. And, and her daughter, Eve, wrote a biography about Marie, her mother, after Marie died. And Eve wrote, you know, Madame Curie. She always referred to her mother as Madame Curie. Madame Curie didn't love friends and family. She loved only science. Now, if my children wrote that about me, that would break my heart, right? So that was—she suffered. You can—when you read the book, you can hear and feel the, the idolatry and the love and the—you know, she worshipped her mother, but she also pined and longed and felt, you know, bereft at not having more of her mother in her life. And she ends up rationalizing it in the book. She says, you know, all women who go on to be great painters or, or great writers or great anything have basically had to give up the norm, which is, you know, motherhood and family. So, you know, Marie gave up a lot of her family experience. Now, Marie actually wrote a daughter uh, letter to her daughter, Irene, who went on to also win a Nobel Prize. So that's kind of cool. Mm-hmm. And in this letter, she points out that she and Pierre... Pierre was her husband, Pierre Curie, led what they called an anti-natural existence, which meant separated from people in a shack in the middle of the woods, just working. And she wrote to Irene that it wasn't necessary to live an anti-natural existence like that, that she had only lived it that because that's what she loved. She loved doing what she did. So for her, it came naturally. So do you think that she was sad that she didn't see I mean I know what you're saying that like her kids were sad that they didn't see her more but was she so consumed by what she was doing that you know it it, it didn't necessarily make her sad that she didn't have those family connections yeah I think she felt some guilt but I think Uh she felt she was pursuing a larger cause Mm -hmm. and so you have to remember that uh, Marie Curie grew up at a time when Poland was being oppressed by Russia and Russia was basically trying to erase Poland from history books and they wouldn't let the kids learn Polish in school. They wouldn't let them learn Polish literature or, or anything. And at some point, the Poles realized that they couldn't fight Russia by military means because Russia was just so much bigger. Uh, so the way they decided to preserve Poland or Polishness was through science because they believed if they had great scientists and great writers, that that work would save the notion of Poland, right? Hmm. And so Marie was part of this Polish positivism movement that said, we will save Poland through becoming great scientists. And and that means that everybody has to play their part, including women, which was a very controversial notion at the time. And so she actually would teach in what's called a flying university. It was like a secret undercover school where they would meet in churches or in basements or behind restaurants, and they would secretly educate women, Polish women, so that they could become scientists. So let me ask you about 
what we can take away from yeah. these incredible people who I think most of us quite rightly are like, we're no Einstein, we're no Marie Curie, we're no Thomas Edison. And, you know, you mentioned that one Marie Curie had two daughters. One of them amazingly also won, she shared a Nobel Prize. Now, that's like amazing. Um, so... I wonder how much can we learn from these people and how much is this an issue of maybe genetics and, and these incredible genes that they got somehow? Right. That's a super interesting question. So, you know, on the one hand, these all the people that end up in my sample of, of cases are, were geniuses, you know, by, by any measure, lots of verification that they had genius IQ. Some of them had extraordinary men, memories you know, like photographic memory, that's hard to replicate, right? That's hard to imitate. And then also some of them seem to have a little bit of, uh, possibly a little bit of, I hesitate to even say it on the radio, but a little bit of psychopathology, right? Tesla most obviously clearly had plenty of psychopathology, a little bit of disorder around obsessive compulsiveness and mania. Some people think that some of them have a bit of asperger's trait. And that, again, is not something we want to imitate. And I also want to be clear, you don't have to isolate yourself to become an innovator. But, and yet what we can learn from their isolation is that the key part is not being socially isolated. The key part is being willing to stand up against norms and to be willing to be weird and to be different and to be unconventional and to question assumptions. And I think that that tells us a lot about how we can you know, change schools and change organizations. Because if we make this a more weird, tolerant world, then people can be like this and still be embraced by society, right? Like Albert Einstein would have come up with those ideas even if he had been embraced as an academic. Now, because he wasn't embraced as an academic, it probably made him more fearless and more willing, you know, to break more rules. But, but I think there's a way that we can learn about standing up for crazy ideas and being willing to persist on them even if other people don't like them or don't agree with them we can learn that from from these people and so there's a there's a huge component of of stuff we can learn about how to be more of a breakthrough innovator in this book. You can also learn to have that self-efficacy. So that notion that Jobs had or that Elon Musk had that, that they could accomplish anything they set their mind to, you can learn that. And you can also help develop it in children or in employees. And it's like a superpower. It's like the closest thing to a human superpower that we can give people and give ourselves. And uh, we should all be trying to do that. For, for um, somebody who is either trying to think about themselves at work or they've got kids and they want to try to impart some of the spirit of innovativeness, you know, I mean, how many kids' books are there about Albert Einstein and Marie Curie and that kind of thing? And, but you really want to impart some of that spirit. How do you do it? Like, what are the first steps? Yeah. So... There's a bunch of things, but let me just start with a couple of them. One is that you should be thinking a lot about what you believe in, what you think is more important than you. What is something great that you want to do for the world that's honorable and noble and intrinsically worth doing, even if you don't make money doing it? Like identifying these idealistic goals, it'll give you a really far range of vision. It'll help you see further into the horizon and keep you motivated. So that's, uh, first of all, a really powerful thing to do. And the second thing is something you can do with your kids, and that is that you should let them try to solve problems themselves. So even when they're struggling at something or they think they don't know how to do it, it 
often our instinct is to jump in there and help them because that's nurturing and it feels like social bonding and good parenting. But sometimes the best thing you can do is stand back and say, you'll figure it out. I got faith in you. And if you don't do it this time, you'll get it the next time. So just just figure it out yourself. You can do this. And, you know, that was really common when I was a, when I was growing up, when I was a kid. But it's less common, I think, with today's parents. And uh, it's a really valuable way for kids to learn self-efficacy. You know, those first early wins when children figure out, hey, I figured out how to fix that all by myself. Or I figured out how to do that thing I didn't think I could do all on my own. Those are really powerful experiences for building self-efficacy. And you can point to those experiences in the lives of Tesla and Musk and Jobs and Curie, and you can see how it changed their perspective of themselves. Melissa Schilling is a professor of management and organizations at New York University's Stern School of Business, and she's the author of Quirky, the remarkable story of the traits, foibles, and genius of breakthrough innovators who changed the world. Melissa, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. This was really fun. If you want to read more about Marie Curie's fascinating life and her fascinating family, remember they won five Nobel Prizes. We've got the story for you at our website, innovationhub.org. Thanks to the people who helped put together this show. Senior producer Elizabeth Ross, producer Mark Sollinger, associate producer Sarah Leeson, and engineer David Goodman. We also had production help from Eleanor Ho. From PRI and WGBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. PRI, Public Radio International.